Bookstuck with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Don't forget to check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis. Coming up on the show today, Jimmy Sony, author of the new book, The Founders, the story of PayPal and the entrepreneurs who shaped Silicon Valley. Jimmy, welcome to Bookstuck. Well, thank you for having me, Richard. I really appreciate you taking time to do this. And congratulations uh, on the book. So who are the founders? Well, it is a group of people who were together in the years, roughly the years, 1998 to 2002, and they helped to create the company PayPal. They're far better known for the the things that they went on to create later. Uh, Some of them, some of the companies they built their household names, Tesla, SpaceX, Affirm, uh, Palantir, LinkedIn, Yelp, YouTube, um, this is a group of people that includes Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, Reid Hoffman, Max Levchin, many of today's leading lights in Silicon Valley. And what I found in the, the ambition behind the book was that, you know, all of the stuff that they do today w- is so interesting, but it, it basically sucks up all the coverage and airtime. And no one had gone back and asked them, you know, perhaps the more sort of... Um, kind of the, the sort of VH1 behind the music, like, wait, how did you get to PayPal? And what, what happened in that first effort? Yeah, it's one of the it's one of the really interesting things. You actually you start the book uh, with a, a conversation with Elon Musk, one of these founders, uh, and it's fascinating that so often uh, perhaps entrepreneurs are a bit cagey about how they start off, but but actually no, not with Elon Musk. He still takes great pride in it, uh, still thinks it's one of his most significant entrepreneurial achievements, and actually wants the story to be told more often. Yeah, I you know I think that. You know, look, he's a really particular case, uh, as in, in, in everything. But I would say with the PayPal story, there's a few things driving your description, which is spot on. The first is um, he hired a number of people who have gone on to do incredible things in Silicon Valley. And he's never really been credited with bringing them on board. Let me give you an example. Roloff Botha is today the head of Sequoia Capital. The person who plucked Roloff Botha out of Stanford Graduate School and brought him to work at the company that became PayPal was Elon Musk. And funny enough, Roloff actually turned Elon down a couple of times, and Elon was just persistent and said, no, this is somebody that's really talented. And Roloff ends up taking the company public as CFO. Now, the thing I would also add is much of what Elon wanted to accomplish with his vision for PayPal, which is different than what the company ended up doing in some ways, that has never really come to pass. He wanted a a single financial services destination to rule them all. And I think there's a bit of um, almost like work undone uh, in that sense. And so I think that's the reason he was really open to talking about it. It's also, I think when you reach a certain stage in life, you just get reflective about some of the early years. Yeah, it's one of the the other uh, interesting facts about this is that, I mean, there are so many colourful characters involved, Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, and, and so on, that uh, as one founder says of the startup, the fiction takes over. I mean, that, that makes your, ve- your job very difficult, doesn't it? Trying to disentangle uh, the fiction from the fact. I think that it's a hundred percent true. I think it's true in almost any kind of telling of these entrepreneurial stories that you want to be careful that you don't just take at face value what the what the protagonists tell you. I had the I had two advantages here. The first advantage is that 
So much time has passed. We are talking about events that happened two decades and more than two decades ago. So, you know, there's not a kind of live wire anymore. Um, most of them have left PayPal. They've gone on to do other things. They don't have a dog in the fight, so to speak. The second advantage I had, you know, which I kind of lucked into is someone shared a, a pretty big archive of emails from that era. And so I had this kind of day-by-day accounting of how the company came to be. Now, why this person held on to these emails, I have no idea, but God bless them because it made my job really easy because then I was able to sift through and see if what someone told me matched the written record from that period. And just as a matter of interest, I mean, the, this, these uh, archived emails, uh, obviously you won't uh, reveal your source, but were they sent to you anonymously or did you know who the source was? So I, I should admit that, you know, I knew who the source was, but actually there were several people who held on to mementos and documents. So it wasn't one person, it was a few. The biggest archive, actually, the, the person... It was almost like they, they, they handed it to me on sort of a series of Dropbox files that was a bit of a lark. Um, I, I, I got the impression that they had kind of archived these and kept them just in case, kind of in a just in case I decide to write my own personal memoir someday or just in case someone comes knocking. I happened to come knocking. And I have to tell you that when I was given that archive, it was, it was pay dirt. It was, I mean, it was Christmas morning times a thousand, right? Because now what I've got is not just... What do you believe happened 20 years ago? But I have, you know, the specific note sent to the company after 9-11 that Peter Thiel wrote as a meditation for what the tragedy meant. I had, uh, in, you know, kind of specific slice of life incidents in the weekly company newsletter. When a writer comes into possession of something like this, I think it's important to be to be both sort of um, judicious as well as respectful. So there were things that I obviously, you know, places where maybe something had veered into the personal, it didn't feel relevant to the storytelling. But the most important set of documents, I would say, were the weekly company newsletters, which I had essentially four years worth of a week by week catalog of exactly how PayPal came to be where it almost stumbled and where it succeeded. And it is, it is one of the things that gives the book uh, its character, I think, that there, there is this kind of granular detail to the story that you're telling. I mean, it, it is one of the, the great improbable stories of the internet age, as, as you point out, but it, it is rooted in that uh, metaphorical moment that every historian wants where you push open the attic door uh, and there are what in the old days used to be the filing cabinets uh, with, with all the records in. Well, and and, act, and to be to be fair, we're we're still you know even in the era that we're talking about, we're still talking about there were still some physical papers. I actually one of the one of the more joyful things about doing this project, um, which I haven't actually spoken about before, is that I had uh, I had interviewed a lot of the investors, people who either invested money in the company or investors who had the chance to but passed on it, and some of them actually kept some of the early business plans for the company that became PayPal. And I think as with a lot of Silicon Valley business plans, you know, these are these are documents that they sort of have a shelf life of five minutes before you decide to change the company entirely. But I was able to see, you know, over the course of the year 1999, I had four separate business plan documents for 1999. And it gave me the opportunity to look at how the company evolved and developed, even in the sort of here's what we're trying to do sense. Um, so there was some physical paper involved, too. 
Yeah, and it's it's interesting that in some ways you pinpoint this this sense of being right on the cusp of a new age as part of the success of PayPal uh, itself. You point out that uh, in some ways that that if PayPal had come even a year earlier, six months earlier, or six months later, it may not have caught the tide in the way that it does. For example, it comes at almost the precise moment uh, you say that that email is really taking off and be and becoming ubiquitous. Uh, it's also catches that eBay renaissance and so on. So kind of timing, but also that has resulted in your archives and, and what you're using uh, is also something that is crucial to the actual story itself. You know, it's, um, it's one of the signature things that you take away from the story, which is that I, I think people look for this uh, kind of distilled essence of what Silicon Valley is. And they look for the secret sauce. And I think maybe one of the the conclusions that I reached that in one light could be framed as disappointing, but in the other is actually a hopeful one, is that timing matters so much. Um, you know, the earliest iterations of these companies, both cases, so just to take a step back for your listeners, PayPal is really the fusion of two companies. One is founded by Elon Musk. It's called X.com. Another is co-founded by Max Levchin and Peter Thiel, and it's called Confinity. And Confinity's earliest incarnation is actually mobile money beaming. They want to beam money between Palm Pilots, right? Palm Pilots are all the rage. They figure they can co ride that wave and make money a part of the Palm Pilot ecosystem. Now, that's an interesting idea. At the time, it was called one of the 10 worst <laughs> business ideas of 1999. Um, today, we take Venmo and Zelle and Cash App and others for granted. Uh, they are a part of the payments firmament in an, in an almost in a way that we, we really do. We don't even think about them, right? We just sort of assume we can do this. Um, so there's a way in which that company had to evolve. Confinity had to evolve to focus on email payments. X.com has this big capacious vision for financial services, you know, which today exists in places like personal capital or Wealthfront, you know, some of these places that are kind of bringing your entire financial life into one digital space. Elon had that vision. He just has it in 1999 when people have basically barely started doing online transactions. And so he too is a bit early. So it is interesting to me, the timing element is such a core part of these stories, and it's the easiest thing to overlook in the retelling. Yeah, and it's it's fascinating because although they are now one of the biggest companies in the world, we, we forget that it's actually quite rare for companies that were started in that 90s dot com uh, bubble uh, to have actually survived. Uh, Elon Musk, you quote, as saying that uh, it was easy to start but hard to keep alive. Yeah, it's it's the you know it's the high drama of this story, or one of the moments of, of high drama. I actually would say it's not a moment of high drama. It is the backdrop against which the high drama happens, which is this company is created at the tail end of the dot com boom, when basically anything with a dot com can do no wrong, and it has to survive through the dot com bust, which is just an an incredible bloodletting in Silicon Valley. Companies go under almost just as quickly as they started, right? And and all of a sudden. You know, you have big, high-flying companies that bought Super Bowl ads like Pets.com, which nine months later are going to liquidation. And so it's against that backdrop that this group of people have to – they've built this company. They close a big round of funding kind of at the nick of time in March of 2000. And now they have to actually right-size the business and bring it – make sure it can stay alive. And it was an apt statement on Elon's part. 
he was responding to an interviewer and he said, this, the person said, oh, PayPal was a hard company to start. He said, no, it was a hard company to keep alive. Um, and, and having now studied this story pretty closely, I, I couldn't agree with him more. Yeah, because you you show that those early years that they're, they're in a constant battlefield that hostile regulators, public skepticism, copycats, mocking press coverage. Uh, I mean, it's it's a spectacularly contested market, and and I guess that PayPal is a, a classic story of survival of the fittest, really. I think it's I think it is, and I think it's actually the kind of thing that creates a cast of mind for the alumni. Um, it's I, I tend now to think it's no accident that these people went on to do what they've done with, let's say, YouTube or Yelp or Tesla, or SpaceX. Uh, I they they learned what it was like to build a company under duress. You know, toward the end of my my interviews with Peter Thiel, you know, I I I wanted to ask him sort of I saved the obvious question for last, which is kind of like, what did you take away from this? And he said, you know, I think all of us learned that a company was hard but doable. And he said that if we had if we had succeeded and it had been easy, we might have learned the wrong lesson, which is that building startup companies is easy. If it had been uh, hard and we had failed, it's possible that all of us would have thought that this you know, technology entrepreneurship racket was, was hopeless. But he said the fact that it was difficult but that we succeeded actually gave us the ability to go into future ventures and know that it was going to be tough, know that we were going to have to change things on a dime, but that there was ultimately a way in which it could be successful. Uh, I think that survival is a big part of this story. It is, ten by the way, uh, it is also very different than the story has often been presented. What this has often been presented as a story, sort of like a glide path. Well, they did PayPal, then they went on to the next thing. And even today, I see commentators saying things like, well, you know, they had that success at PayPal, and that's the reason that it laid the foundation for everything else. That's only 25% true. 75% of that is actually the fight to make that company successful and to make sure that the foundation didn't have a bunch of giant cracks in it. Yeah, and it's it's one of the things that is very striking to me that we, we've got used to the idea of a particular character type uh, who is entrepreneurial. But uh, in, in some ways, it seems to me that this this founding is almost the origin of that, that uh, one of the uh, one of the founders, Amy Clement, calls them a motley crew of misfits. And and the things that we've got used to, the, the oddballs, the high school dropouts, the unconventional characters who don't fit in this cookie cutter away into the world of business the these these are the guys who were starting out with paypal in the 90s i i think it that's a that's an apt description i I would add one one amendment to it and the amendment is i think that the archetype or the the phenotype let's say of a of a kind of hoodie wearing you know possibly dropped out of harvard and has an idea about what they could do on the web i think that that there's a survivorship bias there. And I think there's actually a kind of focus on one person there that creates a unidimensional phenotype that I think we need to retire. And here's why. Part of what happened in the course of doing the PayPal story is that, you know, I ran up against the, the hurdle that anyone telling these stories runs up against, which is, look, there are employees who want to be the center of attention. And then there are plenty of employees, I would actually, the vast majority of whom, want nothing to do with the, the storytelling, particularly at the time the story is being told. And I had this challenge of how do you get these people to talk to you? And I had to earn a lot of trust and build a lot of trust. And I remember filling out these epic questions that people would send me about what my angle was and what my agenda was. And once I had cleared some of those hurdles, what I got to was the actual people who made the company work. 
who in some cases don't fit, call it like the Zuckerberg phenotype, right? Or the Musk phenotype. It, it, there, there's a way in which, you know, someone like Sanjay Bhargava, who had 20 years or so in financial services and then joins PayPal, is not the person that you would look at as being, you know, a character on the show Silicon Valley, but he is one of the key people that is behind one of the key innovations at PayPal that makes it successful. And I don't think I would count him as any less of a quote unquote, you know, founding member or early employee of this team, but he's not someone who went out and sought press. And so there's there's a part of this that I came to appreciate, which is we look at the magazine cover, but underneath the logo are hundreds of people that make these companies work. And I had the virtue of being able to interview many of them during the course of the PayPal story. Now, one of the uh, self-deprecating bit of, bits of humor in the book, of which there are many, uh, it is that the notes uh, for readers that you say that you had to set digital alerts for yourself when you were writing uh, about the use of the, of the phrase PayPal mafia. Uh, tell us a bit about the PayPal mafia, the, the, the cliche, uh, but, but also the reality, any reality behind that cliche. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it, it's this challenge of that, that is the way that this group of people are often referred to. And the reason for that is a, um, a Fortune magazine cover shoot and cover story from 2007 that dubs this group, or I would say a small subset of this group as the PayPal mafia. And it is in 2007, this is five years roughly after many of them have left PayPal, and what they've gone on to do is build the next class of web companies coming out of the dot-com bust. And so what happens is a kind of a myth is attached to them. This is the PayPal mafia. Now, they, you know, the, the person who staged the photo did it at Tosca Cafe. They're dressed up as mafiosos. They're made to look probably, well, as one person put it, made to look much cooler than they actually are um, and much more menacing. And so on the one hand, you have a way to define this group. And what it does is it sends a signal that the alumni from this group continued to do things in, in the web. They continued to invest in one another and, and work with each other at different ventures, which is true. At the same time, that picture did not include several hundred people who worked at PayPal and who could be properly considered PayPal alumni, even if they wouldn't call themselves a part of the PayPal mafia. Um, I, you know, there were, there, I, as you can imagine, there are some people who love that label. There are some people who loathe it, as would be true with any label that's attached to a big group of people. I think the, the, best, uh, the best joke about it comes from David Sachs, uh, where, and he, he said, you know, we, we really like to call us a mafia. He said, we're really more like the Jews than like the Sicilians. They took over our homeland. They burned it to the ground. We all scattered to different places in the world. Um, and, and he, you know, I think he takes it with a, with a light heart. And I, I get the sense that many of them too, too. The, the other problem with the PayPal mafia label, as I see it is, um, it, it makes everything seem much more sinister than it actually is. Like, I think we have to remind ourselves that what this company fundamentally was, was a, a, a creation of a, of a payment rail on the internet at a time when there was a need for that. And when the credit card companies had not satisfied this role. And so the idea of, something sinister or shadowy at the heart of it, you know, it sounds great, but it turns out not to be true. Um, and I think that like all of these sorts of big labels, one needs to uh, uh, appreciate it for what it is without reading too much into it. I mean, some uh, some critics have pointed to uh, perhaps the more systemic, uh, well, to use your word, sinister elements uh, to all of this. That uh, say, well, I suppose really this has put them at the centre of a bitter social, political, and financial uh, debate, hasn't it? 
I think it has, but I think that's the 2022 uh, debate. And, you know, what I'm really writing about is the period of 1998 to 2002. And you have to remember that. So, so just to, give, to put the contrast as starkly as I possibly can, when Peter Thiel and Max Levchin are pitching the company Confinity that births the product called PayPal, they are rejected for funding over 100 times. They get laughed out of rooms. You know, again, their product is dubbed one of the worst business ideas of 1999. I, I sent an old pitch deck that I found back over to Max Levchin, and his reply made me laugh for a couple of days. He said, I wouldn't have funded me if I had gotten this pitch deck shown to me. Um, and so I think they're at the center of a number of big cultural debates, but I think that's a contemporary phenomena in a lot in some of these lives. It is not actually the case that they were thinking big thoughts about geopolitics or about capitalism back in 1998 and 1999. They were simply trying to build this company and bring it to life. Although in some ways it, that it is implicit in the title, the founders, which of course makes us think of the founders, the 18th century founders and the constitution. There, there is a sense that one of the arguments of the book is that these characters laid the foundations for the, for the new digital age. I, I think we'd be hard pressed to argue that they didn't. Um, the earliest money into any number of social networks, particularly Facebook, came out of this alumni group and came out of the windfall from PayPal. You know, one of the biggest social networks in the world, LinkedIn, I actually found this really delightful email that Reid Hoffman had sent to a colleague at PayPal, and he was pitching him on investing. And there were like the six bullets for what LinkedIn would become. And it was kind of quaint to see that in an email, you know, from from the year 2002, and to see that now it was this sort of multi-billion dollar enterprise that had been uh, acquired by Microsoft. Um, you look at things like self-driving car technology, electric vehicles, changes in space logistics. There are, there's a company called Terraformation that emerges out of this group. Their ambition right now is to reforest 3 billion acres of forest ecosystems. So I think that a model for what technology could do within a sector was, it wasn't created at PayPal, but it was applied at PayPal in the world of finance, which is famously complex, fraught with regulations and a lot of competition from established players. And I think once this group had the experience of being able to go into finance and build a foothold for themselves, it was possible how you to see how you would do that in other places. There's another piece here which gets us back to the beginning of the conversation, which is timing. You know, they finish up this many of them, not all of them. Some of them finish up this experience in 2002, just as the hangover is concluding from the dot com bubble bursting. And so there's this renewed. They they walk out as optimists about web technology at a time when. You sort of have a lot of pe uh, presiding pessimism. And so I think of it, even that is a, is a function of just unbelievable timing, that to, to walk out of PayPal in 2002 is to be optimistic at a time when many people are not. And then to have been able to invest in the next generation of, of companies, including things like, again, Yelp and, and LinkedIn and Slide and all the rest. And and just coming back to that founder's idea, I mean, it seems to me that there definitely is a, a political, if not agenda, perhaps philosophy uh, behind a lot of this. I mean, for, for example, Elon Musk has talked about how uh, Tesla has been able to do more and shift the debate on climate change far more than than any government would. I mean, this this seems to this seems to me to be politically, uh, philosophically interesting, but but also to come back to that other point, uh, it's not without certain dangers too. I think that that's a, that's a fair assessment. 
but I'm not sure that the people who bring these things into being would necessarily think about it that way. Um, uh, that's just, that, that's my, my kind of gut reaction is that it, it, it is, I, I don't, I don't, I don't follow sort of the day-to-day tracking of kind of what Elon says about this and that and Tesla. And I'd seen some of the comments, I think, but where I would, where I would point it back to as it relates to the PayPal story is more that when you go into an industry that has big, well-capitalized players like JP Morgan and Chase Bank, and you are able to uh, eke out a successful firm that IPOs and that builds a payment system that is still in existence 20 years later, you walk away from that experience with, the, with a couple of conclusions. One, incumbents frequently don't move fast enough to innovate. Two, a small group of people who work seven days a week with a little bit of capital can actually change an entire industry. And three, you have confidence in your own ability to do that. And so I don't think that, that, there, that, that if I had to go back, and again, I haven't done the story of Tesla or anything, but if I had to go back, I think that what, what, it, what looks like, at least from some of the early writing that Elon did, which is actually available on the Tesla website, it makes for pretty good reading, there was, the plan was always to build you know, an electric car that was the roadster at a high price point, and then over time to build cars at lower and lower price points. There, there is no part of that writing as much as I've seen that really has a political hue to it. It is much more about battery capacity and the, the, ability, the fact that over time, battery capacity will go up, costs will go down, and the more that Tesla can kind of get, if, they, if it can achieve at the high price points, it should be able to shift some of the, the, the cars to be at a lower price point. I, I don't think about it. I think it might be a small P political project to people who are observing it, but I don't think that if you were really to press the people involved, that they would think of it as as a as a political project in the in the strictest sense. Yeah, we had um, Sebastian Malaby on uh, a, few, a few weeks ago talking about venture capitalism, and and he made the point about, for example, uh, the founder of Impossible Foods. That you know, there's another example of somebody who thought that they could shift uh, the, an an entire agenda if they made the technology work. In in that case, producing a burger. Of a, a vegan burger uh, that could be just as good uh, in terms of taste as a, as a regular burger. Uh, and, and it seems to me that this is something that a lot of these entrepreneurs share, that kind of sense of a, a, a very specific product and a very specific uh, business problem, but also a sense that really they want to change the world too. Well, and I, and I think that there's, I think you have to have that kind of ambition and that view of the potential of whatever the startup project or startup idea is, because it is just so backbreakingly hard to bring it into existence. I think the thing that I walk away with from the whole of this project is just understanding that many startups are built by the skin of their teeth. And so if you are, you know, if it is simply, you know, another lemonade stand, right, it is hard to wake up seven days a week and work 18 hours a day to bring that to life. But if it's a lemonade stand that's fundamentally going to change how lemonade is done for the rest of human t- for the rest of time, that is something that gives you, I would say, a, a, a bit more uh, a bit more of a pep in your step when you're getting to work for the seventh day in a row. 
And on that uh, that that notion of the founders, I mean, do you think we really are in a new age? Will we look back in two hundred years' time uh, and see this as the beginning of a new distinctive age? Do you think? You know, I, I I think every every era has its has its sort of uh, narcissism. It always thinks that it's the most important era until the I next one. I suppose one that's the thing. Do, do you think it's an era or do you think it's an age? Ooh, that's a great it's a great question, and I, I'm not sure I know that the, that there's a technical difference. What I would say is this: I think we will look back at the years, let's say 1995 to 2002 as having inaugurated, and we already do because we're 20 years removed, but I think that that period when the internet came to life changed business forever and that work is not done yet. And so what what I maybe the the more the the correct thing to say is 1995 to some unspecified date in the future, we are living through a period where a universal network of information is changing business, which has never happened before until now. And there are some sectors where that's happened very fast and is still continuing, like finance. And there are some sectors, say real estate, where it's in, where it's happening and it's going to continue to to change uh, in the years to come. I don't think we're at the end of that movie yet. So the book is The Founders, the story of PayPal and the entrepreneurs who shaped Silicon Valley. It's written by my guest, Jimmy Sony, and published by Simon & Schuster. Uh, but for now, Jimmy, congratulations again. And thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Well, Richard, thank you. This uh, You gave me a lot to think about, and I, I appreciate the, the depth and thoughtfulness of the questions. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damien Marusic. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening.